Time for security now with Steve Gibson. I got an email yesterday from Dropbox saying we have changed your password. What's going on at Dropbox? Steve will talk about it. Plus a bedtime story all about Alibaba's cave and zero knowledge. It's all next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 363, recorded August 1st, 2012, Alibaba's Cave. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist from Citrix. Take control of your IT world from one simple cloud-based platform. Provide live or unattended support to all your users anywhere. Sign up for your 30-day free trial today. Visit gotoassist.com and use the offer code SECURITY. And by Carbonite.com. Carbonite online backup, automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files, just $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now. Get ready. We're going to protect your security and privacy online with this guy right here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. You've probably heard the name. Steve's been around the uh, industry for years, going back to the first Apple II light pen, which he created. He also wrote great columns. What was the name of your InfoWorld column? Was it InfoWorld? It was Tech Talk. Tech Talk. I, I originally that. the original con the original concept I had the name I had was behind the screens, which I kind of thought was mm. fun. Um, yeah, but I like that. CompuServe of all people, that's this sort of dates us. <laughs> CompuServe claimed that they they contacted uh, the uh. Infoworld publishers and said, "Ah, we have a we have a trademark on behind the screens. We'd like you not to use it." See, this has been going on since years ago, folks. Yeah, nothing new. Yeah. Well, I like it, and 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 did you? I know you were thinking at one point of making an ebook compiling all of those. Did you ever do that? Um, never e. I did. I did republish the first. I had. I had uh, co-publication rights from the beginning with Infoworld. That was my deal. Is that you know I just wanted to be able to do something with them in the future, which always seems to be my approach. And so I had. I did publish a passion for technology was the name of the series. That's right. And I, yeah. Yeah, it was five books that were the first five of the eight years that I did it. And I went back and added more, of course. I added diagrams because they were just, for a weekly column, I didn't, they didn't have the budget or the personnel or whatever to create diagrams for publication. So there were oftentimes where, you know, a picture really helped the explanation. And so I, I added graphics to almost every one of the columns and uh, to also give them pe people something they didn't they hadn't, hadn't hadn't had before and it was all printed on acid free archival grade you know museum grade paper um, in a you know I don't know we made a couple tens of thousands of sets and and sold them for years 
and and somewhere I have them. I mean, I was going to say, all. can you still get them? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean the 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 books are out of print, but I have I do have all of that text. It was e this? Ventura <laughs> publisher was the what was the uh, the publication um, program that I used for doing the the uh, computer to print. And uh, that's around somewhere. So I have thought it would be really neat to get them all up on the website. I wouldn't sell them. I'd just make them available. But um, Maybe an uh, e-book. I, the real problem is going to be getting it out of Ventura. <laughs> it's a technical oh, it's issue. A challenge, Leo. I want <laughs> you might have to write some code. <laughs> to do. All right. What are we talking? I see the name of the, t- uh, the, uh, the show on the screen, Alibaba's Cave. What are we, what are we doing today? Well... I promised everyone I would give them something to think about. Okay. And we have touched on several times, we've touched on the terminology and some of the concepts underlying a, a, some cryptographic concepts known as zero-knowledge interactive proofs. Mm. A, a zero-knowledge interactive proof is something that fascinates cryptographers. And in fact, it's recently become of greater interest because of this approaching threat of quantum computing. Um, the idea is you want to um, – we, we, have, we have two people. In, in traditional crypto parlance, we have Alice and Bob, you know, A and B, and sometimes C, we have Carol. We bring Carol in. But those are the names every all the cryptographers universally use to describe – interactions between people who are exchanging secrets or needing to agree on on you know cryptographically secure tokens and so forth we have alice bob and carol and then i think it's doug (laughs) anyway in in the case of zero knowledge interactive proofs we have peggy and victor are this the standard players peggy is the prover and victor is the verifier and the and the idea is Peggy wants to prove that she has knowledge of something without giving any of it away. Mm. So she wants to prove to Victor, the verifier, Victor is the verifier, she wants to prove something without divulging any of its content. So uh, we're going, I'm, there's, 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 there's the traditional Alibaba and the 40 Thieves myth but there's a variation of it which can be used to explain these concepts. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to explore Alibaba's cave. Wow. So this is one that you really want to put your thinking caps on for because we're going to involve your mind. Well, I No passive listening you, on this one. Yeah. The, the, what's happened is because this has become important – the concept of zero-knowledge interactive proofs has been formalized. Ah. And when academic people formalize stuff, they, they create very clear, careful definitions. And there's the trickiest thing is the definition of what it means to have zero-knowledge communicated. And... And the end of this story that I'm going to tell... I love this. ...is about that. This so, is great. This, yeah, this, this is, is this great. Is, this is going to be fun. This is the thing I think people love most about this show is the fact 
that this is a smart show. You, you really learn something out of this show. I love it. I can't wait. Well, let well, me take speaking. Oh god! Okay, oh, god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go are, ahead. There are there are some people who have not learned something, uh, <laughs> and we'll find out. <laughs> Dropbox and let's see, Dropbox and Tesco. It's a large okay. supermarket chain. Because I got an email from Dropbox, which I forwarded to you. Yep, and you were not alone. So we will talk about that in a moment. I was very curious. I'm so glad you're going to cover this because I I was trying to figure out why are they saying this. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's mention, uh, you know, there are a lot, I know there are a lot of IT professionals who uh, listen to this show. It's a great, you know, kind of almost continuing education course in your business. And Citrix knows that too. And it's one of the reasons they, uh, they asked us to talk to you about something called Go to Assist. Uh, it's kind of the IT professionals' uh, toolkit, tool belt for getting the job done. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. I understand. I know Go to Assist. I've used it for years. Go to Assist is the, you know, remote access, remote support tool, and that's true. In fact, it's the number one remote support tool worldwide. Uh, IDC just said it's got thirty-eight percent market share, far and away bigger than anything else. But you know, it's more than that now, and this is what's so exciting. Citrix has added; they've actually acquired a company that uh, adds remote monitoring to their remote support. So this is now really kind of goes full circle. And I wanted to tell you a little about the remote monitoring. And at the end, I'm going to tell you how you could try this yourself for free. So the idea about remote monitoring is uh, you really need to be proactive. You can't wait till something fails if you're, if you're, if you're in charge of supporting a network <clears throat> or supporting hardware, but, you know, even just computers. So here's how it works. You will install the GoToAssist crawler on your network. It literally goes out, crawls the network, detects not only all hardware, computers, network-attached devices. It also detects all software, makes you this amazing assay of everything out there. And then, and this is where it gets really sweet, you set up a dashboard of things you want to keep an eye on. Network performance, hard drive space, toner cartridges even, anything that you want to monitor. They've got built-in um, standard dashboards, or you can customize it completely to do exactly what you need. And then the, and then it will notify you. And it, by the way, very flexible. Email, text message, or instant message. It will let you know if you cross a preset threshold. So, for instance, you can say, hey, if any hard drive on the network goes below 5% free space, let me know. Any, if the network uh, response times, if latency goes up or response, let me know. This way you are a support hero because you go in, you fix the problem before anybody even notices there was a problem. It really is great. And then you can use that live remote support, unattended too, by the way, if you want, to fix the problem. That's going to save you a lot of time. And it's really great for somebody like our own IT guy who loves this, by the way, Russell Temeny, who is a, he's a managed service or managed support provider. So he's got, I think, a three-man team with over 300 clients. The only way you could have a company that big with such a small team is with this kind of solution. He'd been using something much more expensive. We set him up with this, and he said, I love it. <laughs> this is it. So here's the deal. Try it, will you? Go to assist.com. It's free for 30 days. Just visit gotoassist.com, see the Try It Free button, click that. You get to choose whether you want to do uh, uh, support, remote support or remote uh, access or um, the monitoring or both. 
free for 30 days, both. But I do ask that you use the promo code SECURITY so that Steve gets credit for it. Promo code SECURITY. G-O-T-O-Assist.com. Try it, really, seriously. Very cool stuff. We've been using it. I, I, have, I, don't, I don't ever have to do this anymore because our system's gotten pretty reliable, but I have access to all the servers in the basement from my house. If I want to fix something, I just log in, and it's really, that's, that's incredibly useful. Go to assist.com, offer code security. So what's the Dropbox deal? I'm dying to know. I got an email, in fact, I could show this, from Dropbox that said change your password, but they did something that kind of puzzled me. Well, okay, so we discussed on the podcast a couple weeks ago that there was something going on because Dropbox users who had who have control of their email accounts and are able to create aliases for themselves whenever they need to, they were receiving spam on email accounts that they had specifically created right. for their Dropbox accounts right. and for no other purpose, right. which led us to believe that there had been some problem at Dropbox, which Dropbox was not talking about. So... Just yesterday, on July 31st, there was finally a posting on the Dropbox blog. Um, it reads, a couple of weeks ago, we started getting emails from some users about spam they were receiving at email addresses used only for Dropbox. We've been working hard to get to the bottom of this and want to give you an update. Our investigation found that usernames and passwords recently stolen from other websites were being used to sign in to a small number of Dropbox accounts. We've contacted these users and have helped them protect their accounts. A stolen password was... Here it, here, here it gets interesting. A stolen password was also used to access an employee... Dropbox account uh -huh. <clears throat> containing a project document with uh. user email addresses. So it wasn't just externally stolen account information that was being reused, but one of those happened to be an employee, meaning that an employee of Dropbox was had re what yes, yes was compromised by reusing the same password that he used for his own. Dropbox, Dropbox account as he used somewhere else. So they say, we believe this improper access is what led to the spam. We're sorry about this and have put additional controls in place to help make sure it doesn't happen again. Keeping Dropbox secure is at the heart of what we do. And we're taking steps to improve the safety of your Dropbox, even if your password is stolen, including two-factor authentication a way to optionally require two proofs of identity, such as your password and a temporary code sent to your phone when signing in. And they said coming in a few weeks. Also, new automated mechanisms to identify suspicious activity will continue to add more of these over time. And a new page that lets you examine all active logins to your account. And finally, in some cases, we may require you to change your password. For example, if it's commonly used 
or has not been changed in a long time. Okay, that's BS. I'm going to call BS on this because I have to I say I use a unique generated password for Dropbox. It's not used anywhere else. It's a very strong password. And they have changed it on me at great annoyance to me because we use this for our corporate account. I have to go all over the place and yeah. change it in many locations. This now, is would proactively be, keeping me safe. You idiots. What I what would be interesting to know whether they must or how widespread yeah. this is. Because what what they may I actually think, I think they changed everybody's passwords. Right. And that tells me they got compromised in a much more serious way than they're acknowledging. Right. I, I'm afraid right? that reading, reading between the lines, that's what I would have to Why assume. change my password, a good, strong, unique password? Why change all these people's passwords if the only issue is a few people use the same password on multiple sites and they were hacked? Or we, you got your email address leaked out by our employee was hacked. Neither of those justify changing everybody's password. Certainly not mine. Well, I was going to say, neither of those explain why you received that email because well now bear is saying he didn't get that email uh many people in the chat room are saying that they did not get that so it wasn't for everybody all right i thought it was for everybody then i'm wondering why it's for me maybe because i haven't changed the password in a year i don't know but it's a strong password it's a very believe me if you saw this password i looked at it (laughs) it was generated i'm not sure if it was generated by uh, one password or it probably was generated by LastPass. it's 12 characters random numbers letters special characters there's no way it's not a strong password well and in in following up on this i when i went to dropbox LastPass jumped in and logged me on and i didn't i did not receive any email from them but i also tend to to obsolete my email addresses occasionally. And so I thought, well, okay, maybe they tried to send me something, but it bounced. So I still have an email address, and LastPass knows how to log me in, but it's not a current email. But it sounds like, from from what you're saying, that uh, you know that many people are getting this, but not everybody is getting it. It's just so even if they leaked my email address, that didn't mean they leaked the password. So I, I just have to think there's more than they're admitting here or they're being i think in you know overly well you tell me you're the security expert do i if i haven't changed my password in a year but it is a strong password is there we've had this discussion yeah i just i don't buy this notion that that a a really really good password should be forced to be changed well i mean okay right uh, <laughs> I interrupted myself. I don't think I don't buy the idea that there's any benefit at all to be gained from ch- from periodically change being forced to change a really good strong password. I just I don't see it. The the only reason would be if in the background somebody is persistently trying to crack it and going doing a brute force attack and someday they're going to get there but but then, 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 then you could say, okay, the only benefit of changing it would be if I changed it to something that they had already tried so that this brute forcer wasn't going to still stumble upon the new one. I mean, there's, there's, in there's no In my opinion, benefit. the only reason that you could reasonably say change your password, Leo, is if they knew or thought or suspected or were worried that my password had been compromised, which means 
that they have in some way been compromised and have not yet copped to it. That's the only thing I can understand. Because, yeah. and it is a, with a service like Dropbox, it's a real hardship because it's not just one machine. Right. It's all, it's all over the place. I'm going to have failures, uh, intermittent failures in all sorts of places that I don't even know about because this is our company account. There's nothing impersonal on here. It's all, it's completely stuff we share with each other, but I have it yeah. on, I don't know how many machines. It's just driving me crazy. It's just unacceptable, I think. Well, they're big. And, uh, and you know, they've, they've made mistakes in the past. We talked about, remember when... Um, when due to a problem they had about a year ago, you could use any logon you wanted in order to access someone's account. It wasn't checking the password at all. You could just type noodles in as your password and it, you'd, you'd get in. Yeah. So it's like, whoops. They're, they're, I think they're not being candid here. And, I'm, and we're not alone, by the way. Uh, well, I did, I did quote here. Uh, I caught three, the top four, the, the first four, um, uh, or for three rather, Responses to that blog posting, someone posting as Tech Warrior said, you should start improving security by getting rid of by getting rid of email addresses as usernames. Kellick wrote, please use Google Authenticator. So I'm not installing yet another dang app on my phone for this. Yeah. LastPass already uses Google Authenticator and it's slick. And then an anonymous poster said, agreed, was thinking the same thing. I don't use Dropbox now because of the security issues, but I may give it a second glance. It would be nice if it was integrated with Google Authenticator. So I resent the idea that the what they're really saying is, oh, Leo, you are probably one of those people that use the same password on multiple services. So we're going to make you reset your password. I resent that because I don't. And uh, I had a strong well, password for Dropbox. I just and, really and resent it's that. And it's a true inconvenience that they have they have reset the password on your account. It's really, really. Fr- well, I'm you know we're gonna we're gonna move off Dropbox. Well, then something else really bizarre happened. I got a tweet from uh, someone called Tinzine T I N Z I E N, who sent who 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 tweeted to dropbox dropbox underscore support and to me s g g r c and he said dropbox dot com is showing a very weird and expired certificate when trying to visit the site and um I attached it to the email that i I sent you although you probably haven't seen the email um I know that some of your guys did receive it because they knew what the title of this podcast was <laughs> but um, but uh, I have so I have the JPEG of the Dropbox cert, which I captured. It was for www.kitchensink.not with a numeric O, N zero T. So kitchensink.not. And in the URL, it's he, he did not mistype it. It's www.dropbox.com and and the certificate came up, and it was for kitchensink.not. That doesn't and sound then, right. <laughs> I know. And then then I logged into Dropbox, checked uh, over SSL, of course, checked what the, the certificate was today, and I noted that it was not valid after 129-2014, which is some integer number of months later than last night. So it sounds like something strange happened. You know, maybe 
some funky certificate got served or or who knows what's going on. But, you know, just a day, another data point. Dropbox, you know, you were talking about moving away from them. And um, what is the N0T TLD? There's no N0TDTLD. <laughs> I know. This is this. Uh, you know what? This is uh, they were hacked. That can't possibly. How could you even get a certificate for a non-existent TLD? Well, that certificate is self-signed. So oh, it's some, self-signed. Some, oh, it's bogus. Yeah, so, so someone hacked oh, it themselves, it. and could be and somebody at Dropbox. It. Yes, it could. It could be just like a, a an internal working certificate right. that you know, like for their own, that somehow got put up on their servers by mistake, <sighs> or they were I am changing less certificates. and less impressed with Dropbox. Yeah, how could you fumble, fumble this so badly, dudes? <laughs> Well, and remember, too, as far as we know, they're not doing any pre-egress encryption. Right. So, you know, they they encrypt, I'm sure, for transit. But I don't, as I remember from our last look at them, um, you know, they're they're subject to subpoena. So it's like, eh, I'm, I'm not putting my stuff there without having it encrypted first. Oh, wait a minute. Now, this is interesting. Uh, one of the chatters has sent me a Google search for kitchensink.not. It's apparently um, – it was used in a Gmail hack attack. Uh, this is inter- – this this goes back to 2008. Kitchensink.not is interesting. What huh. is it? <laughs> wow. 105 million results for it. And uh, going back many years, this is I. Uh, I don't have time to do the research, but that's interesting. What is it? Yeah. Wow. It's not something. Well, I would have just said, "Oh, they're just using something random to made up." Uh, clearly not. Yeah. Clearly not. So maybe there was some sort of an intercept of this one tweeter's could just posting. be him. Yeah. Yes, and somehow he got to a bogus. He got to a bogus. Um, Dropbox server with a self-signed cert, but you know any browser is going to notify him that this is yeah. you know not valid, and that's what happened. Is that he had, that that Firefox you know had a had a fit when it got this certificate? And yeah, said, but don't you find it interesting that the same uh, the same domain was used in a Gmail uh, man in the middle attack? That is interesting. Uh, yep. Well, I just you know so there are many, and and if you want an alternative to Dropbox, we have a. Whole host of good TNO, trust no one choices. Steve did a whole episode uh, on other choices out there. And uh, I'm going to be re-listening to that episode and picking somebody new because I'm not using them anymore. I'm infuriated. Why should I have to change my password? Well, on that note, a number of tweeters commented that there was some strange behavior, uh, well, um, you know, unwelcome, from Microsoft's newly released Outlook.com. And I went over to Outlook.com to to poke around, see what was going on there. I guess it's a Gmail clone. I'm sure you know all about it, Leo. I've I've not spent any time there. What is the name again? Outlook.com. Oh yes, the new Microsoft Hotmail. Exactly. Yeah. Um, in fact, I immediately upset- Dan Dan in our chat room said, "Quick, get your name," and I did. I immediately got Leo Laporte at Outlook.com because that's yep. important to preserve that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, anyway, it's what nice. people. What people were tweeting yeah. was that it has a 16-character password maximum. Oh. 
So <laughs> here they are. Uh, and, and someone sent me a screenshot showing the error message they received. And, and Microsoft's this new Outlook.com says, if, uh, you are apparently using a password longer than 16 characters. 16 characters is our maximum. Huh. Please use only the first 16 characters oh of your longer password. That is a long it's password, like, though, right? I mean, come on. 16 yeah, should be enough. But, but we know that it ought to be, you know, we don't care how long it is. shouldn't be limited at all. Yeah. Yeah. It ought to be, you know, you use what you want and good luck to you. Do you think they have some sort of like a fixed length field in their password database? I mean, is well, that, that's the concern yeah. is that they're not. I mean, if you hash, <laughs> it's not then it doesn't idea. matter how long it is. Right. That's a bad idea. It means they're only not hashing, if, right? Only if you're not hashing oh, that boy. you care about the input length. Oh, boy. Yeah. Meanwhile, Tesco is Tesco is in the Ooh, UK. Here's it, by the way, just an update on that. Yeah. Apparently, the team did a. Uh, I am uh, the creator of Outlook.com, Ask Me Anything, and they said, We are aware of this problem and we are going to ad adjust it. Uh, we is uh, yeah, we'll make it thirty two. That you know, what that shows is how smart the community has become. Why can't I have more than sixteen characters for a password? That limitation has always existed. Probably goes back to Hotmail days. We're looking into fixing it, says Martin. Uh, yep. Hmm. Oh, so interesting. So Hotmail has been accepting longer passwords, but truncating it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, that's really bad. <laughs> So that's interesting. So they are aware of it apparently and planning to fix it. Interesting. God, you know, it, is this and what's what's well, amazing? It's legacy, it's legacy code. That's the real problem. Yeah, this is just not hard to fix. I know. You know, I mean, it's like it's it's romper room. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Tesco. <laughs> and Tesco. In fact, somebody asks. I love this. They're so smart. Recursion asks. Why is there even a limit? The password should be salted and hashed. How can you not process a password of arbitrary length? Well, and that brings us nicely into our next story. Uh, a security researcher named Troy Hunt, who has uh, in, uh, whose, whose current blog posting is just www.troyhunt.com. So if you can go there, you can bring up his current posting. Um, and I saw some Twitter traffic about this, and this has hit the UK news naturally. The register.co.uk picked up on it. Tesco is, Troy explains, the... Uh, a major super, I guess the major supermarket chain in the UK, like uh -huh. Kohl's is in Australia and like Safeway is here in the US. Okay. And so Troy tweeted that, um, uh, 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 Troy explained that um, he had seen a rumor and then confirmed because he's now in Australia but used to be in the UK and so had a Tesco web, web store account that... He asked them for his password, which he forgot, and they mailed it to him. <laughs> Wait a minute, physically just, mailed it to him? Just, no. Emailed their, it to him. Emailed, sorry, emailed it to him in the clear, this is your <laughs> here's password. Your, here's your password, dude. Here you go. Now, <laughs> now I should know, point out, we get a lot of heat because uh, twit.tv, for historic reasons, there's no reason to log into it, but it has a login because it uh, it's, shouldn't be exposed, but it is exposed. And if you forget your password, we will email it to you in the clear. But there's nothing ah. there. You, right. You know. So there's no value. <laughs> there's, there's no, no value, value to it. So it has no right. – you, there's nothing you could do with your password. So don't so, get mad at me. <laughs> so um, so uh, he asked them and they – because they, Tesco has an active Twitter account – 
And they responded, passwords are stored in a secure way. They're only copied into plain text when pasted automatically into a password reminder mail. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh, goodness. So Graham Cluley, who's the senior security consultant at Sophos, responding to this, wrote, It does look as though Tesco is not following industry best practice. Any company that can email you your password is doing something wrong. And Tesco has not replied. And then uh, Tech Week Europe picked up and they reported, this is today they reported, a dangerous flaw has been found on the Tesco website, placing the company's online customers at risk. Tech Week Europe has learned just a day after the supermarket chain was lambasted for weak security practices, said that their their story goes on. Yesterday, security researcher Troy Hunt had exposed problems with Tesco security, including the fact that it appeared to be storing customer passwords in plain text without proper salting and hashing. Well, they may be encrypting them and then decrypting them to send, but that's not good either because... If their password database is is captured, it could be decrypted in the same way they do it, and then everyone would have their passwords, making it easier than having to do the you know password hash reversing. Anyway, so their story finishes. Today it emerged that a cross-site scripting flaw on the site could be exploited by hackers to hijack users' accounts. Tech Week Europe has seen evidence that proving evidence proving that the flaw exists and has warned Tesco about it but received no response. The cross-site scripting code will not be published for the safety of Tesco shoppers. And if anyone is a Tesco customer, I would I would recommend you go take a look at Troy Hunt's current blog posting because he has a, an extremely comprehensive posting where he goes into many problems. Uh, with Tesco security. The more he looked, the more he found. So, and it may very well, it's probably not a coincidence that a cross-site scripting flaw has surfaced the day after Troy started looking because I would imagine that this brought a lot of attention over to Tesco's website security practices and they have been found wanting. On the brighter side, (laughs) LastPass... Our favorite has announced two new tighter security options that I really got a kick out of. Um, I thank Leon Zandman uh, in the Netherlands, a listener of ours, for tweeting this to me. This just happened. So thanks to to Leon. I found out about it in time for this week's podcast. Two new options for LastPass. Restrict login to selected countries, which I think is very cool. I mean, how often... Are you, if you're not an international traveler, or even if you are, you may be bouncing between here and the UK, for example, or here in, or, you know, the UK and Australia, but, you know, you're not planning to go to China or Russia. So why allow logins from places, from countries you absolutely never go? And I think this is an example of the kind of forward thinking I love about LastPass and this is what everyone should have. I mean, I, I'm not going anywhere. So 
I absolutely don't want to allow any of my accounts to be logged into from anywhere else. And if I'm planning a trip, I know. And, and there ought to be like, you know, some if in the least in, in, in the least some extra extraordinary login requirement. If I try to log in from outside my normal geographic location. So I just think this is very slick. It's like, why isn't everybody doing this? This Makes is kind of like the Google thing where they tell you somebody in, uh, accessed your Gmail from an odd spot. I think every site, everything should do this, right? Yes. And, and in fact, I would go further because Gmail will, I guess, I guess we are seeing some things that are saying, wait, we're going to deny un, you know, really abnormal behavior. It's very much like how your credit card company will call and say, are you buying right. wigs? In the Ukraine, new, uh, new, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> only in Southern California. And they, and you know this is all. It's not somebody going. Hmm, this looks odd. They they, they use uh, business intelligence software yes. that can is very good now at detecting odd patterns, abnormalities. Yeah, well, it won't let me buy gas, which is annoying. There, well. Mm, I know there are some things that uh, maybe it's a little oversensitive. We get, <laughs> but in a, you know, I'd prefer my credit card gets uh, blocked. Uh, yes, in excess than in, than less often than it should be. We yes. are for some reason Bank of America with our business cards turns them off all the time. Yeah, uh, just some some companies Chase. Uh, I also have a Chase card. They don't do it as much. Um, you know, Amex is very good. They'll call you. They 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 really interact with you a lot. Um, you know, I did I, add recently to my main card the ability to notify notify me by text. And it has turned. It's not good. Handy. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Yes. Because yep. I can very quickly say. Oh, in fact, it was when when Google charged me for the Nexus Seven. It had been a month since I ordered it, and it was uh, I got the two forty nine one plus the case, so it was three oh three dollars. And I got a text coming in, and it's like, yep, I know what that is. And I said I was able to uh, acknowledge it right there on the spot. So it was very cool. And, I, and I'm going to tell you about or talk to you about that in a second. Uh, and then the second feature, the first one was restrict login to selected countries. The second one is also very nice. Disallow logins from the Tor network. Really? Now, why would that be? Well, good? because you, you could, because what, it, what occurred to them when they implemented the first one, they realized, wait a minute, there are Tor nodes in the U.S., so somebody outside the U.S. who was being blocked because of a geographic restriction could use Tor to proxy their connection inside the U.S. And so that would be a way around this. And so they said, ah, let's just toss that one in, too. We won't allow um, a, a Tor access to LastPass login, which, again, like really nice thinking. Well, I'm going to go into my LastPass settings. Yeah, you can just turn those on. They're yeah. off by default. Although you, the U.S. is turned on for U.S. customers, so that so that when you, I mean, you're, you're that's not the nice blocked. thing is you can switch. You can be in Europe and say, "Oh, no, no, turn absolutely, that off. Yeah. absolutely." You just log in. Um, I uh, Computer World picked up a nice note that I just wanted to share. We've talked a lot about Firefox's uh, moving toward background updates. Uh, following the successful Chrome, uh, Google Chrome browser model, it, just one week after version 14 of Firefox was released, 46% of all Mozilla browsers were using version 14. Wow. So That's amazing. 
But yeah. it's automatic now, right? So that means the other 54% just never use Mozilla. Um, oh, I don't know what that or they're means. They're so that old, they're not, at, they're not in the automatic upgrade That would state. be it, yeah. Because if you're at 3.5 or 3.6 or... Right back further then it won't it won't right. move you automatically so you've got to be into that automatic mode so half of mozilla users have been have 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 been manually updating themselves to the point now that it, they no longer need to is probably the way to to best phrase that that's great and i i noted a few things i saw a little blurb about safari version 6 which we all received. Oh, and by my God, you're right. That was a long download, Leo. <laughs> oh. oh, my Well, it's, it's half a gigabyte, isn't it? What is it? Uh, no, no, it's four gigabytes, four point something gigabytes. It's, that's no excuse because I downloaded. Half a terabyte. What did I? Uh, I downloaded something that was three gig just yesterday. Uh, actually, it's uh, the latest it's version, the latest version of FreeBSD, the, the full DVD install. Mm-hmm. And it was three gig. And, it you know, it took a couple hours, but not. Oh my goodness! Yeah. I think OS ten version ten point seven took all day. I mean, it was just like you know, you're not waiting for it. Well, millions Anyways. of people are downloading it. That's why. Yes, I mean, it's, yes. You know, it's busy. So, uh, Sam's reported Apple has released an updated version of its Safari browser, Safari six, for OS ten version ten point seven, and they said Lion, but we know it's Mountain Lion, all right? Um, because what was the the other one was just regular Lion. Yeah, Lion. Oh, that's what I thought. I ain't anyway, Lion. So it addresses more than, <clears throat> are we sitting down? 120 security <laughs> issues present in version 5.x of the browser. Jiminy. Yeah. Jiminy. That could have been exploited to allow cross-site scripting attacks, arbitrary code execution, and file theft. So, yes. Wow. Everybody. 120 security issues. It may take all day to get it, and it costs $19.95, but probably a good idea. Um, Safari 6 also incorporates several new features, including a smart, smart search field that can be used to search and to input site addresses, and an offline reading list that allows users to save pages to a list to be read even when an internet connection is not available which would have been nice in 1997. <laughs> I don't know when internet connection is not available today. <laughs> hey, you know. So I tweeted to SGPAD for 199 I am very impressed yeah. and loving yeah. the, the Google Nexus 7. Yeah, nice, I, um, nice little... Uh, tablet in fact I, i've heard from a number of people who stopped using ipad yeah well i'm not that but the, i did hear from someone who responded saying that he used one of those used devices ref, you know will buy your old stuff sites got so much money back that he was able to buy a nexus 7 and take his girlfriend out to a nice meal so <laughs> and he's very happy and i am too i have been now what i've been doing is i carry it with me because I've got, I always have my iPad, a notebook, pencil, a mechanical pencil eraser, and the Kindle DX. Now I've added to that the in a nice little case. I've added to that the Nexus Seven because I'm showing it to people, recognizing that there are people who 
aren't going to, you know, do an $800 iPad, but right. can, especially when they've got kids. One of my friends at, at um, Starbucks has a, has, has a kid, that, you know, she bought him a new iPhone and dropped it in the toilet the first day he had it. It's <laughs> like, okay, well, this is not a kid you want to give anything really expensive to. But for $199, I mean, and, and so I poked at it Saturday and Sunday um, uh, at Starbucks in the morning. And, you know, I installed uh, Amazon, a, a couple free apps. I poked around the Google store. I, I, I dug deep in and changed settings and things. And, and it is what I wanted, which is it is responsive. It's, I mean, it's smooth. It is, it's, it's, it's a, a very impressive piece of work for 200 bucks. So I just wanted to make sure everyone listening to the podcast had heard that. I mean, it's, Although I just saw some pictures of the of the expected seven inch iPad toward the end of this year, and it looks pretty cute too. I don't know if those are real yet, but it looks like we're going to be getting that. And you know, and we now know that it's going to be ten twenty four by seven sixty eight, so the same resolution as the old iPad, the original iPad in a smaller size. But boy, the Google Nexus Seven. If you are, at, I mean, if you just you know a counterculture person, if you don't want to do Apple, you want to do Android. Um, it, it's a beautiful piece of work. And I actually like the 16.9 form factor. You know, Apple's uh, tablet, if the rumors are true, uh, it's going to be, be like an iPad, and that makes read. sense. Yeah. Yep. And, and I have to say, even for reading, and we talked about this because... Yes. But I think even for reading, this is a nice aspect ratio, and it's certainly for watching video. And I meant to bring that up again. What I did, um, uh, Damages is um, in its fifth season. Mm. It went to DirecTV season four and five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was watching an episode of that, uh, and it was so nice not to have to mess with iTunes. Also, I just want to put this media on this tablet to go watch it. And so it, I mean, so it, the experience was completely nice. It was widescreen. And I did want to mention, Leo, that I'm not as I'm not finding as much a problem with a 16 by nine form factor as I as you I you were worried. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah. Although it would be nice if the home screen would also rotate. The home screen it, it insists on on being in portrait. It won't be. It won't landscape. It's and there, there, yeah. I don't know if that's a setting, but I think that that makes sense. Be, it, it probably different launches would let you do that, but uh, it's hard uh, to re uh, um, arrange those icons. There's such you know maybe on a four three it isn't, but on a sixteen nine there's such a, a difference big, between portrait and landscape change. that you really have yep. to rearrange a lot of stuff. Um, I'm I've been I think that uh, my my you know. I'm interested in it, but I like Android. And but I was very interested to see the number of people who are very strong uh, iOS supporters and and uh, iPad lovers say, "Yeah, you know what? Uh, it's actually uh, they, they almost it was almost painful for them to admit. I think it's actually not too bad. Kind of like well, it. I I feel like we're really seeing a lot of con- collision now in the patent territory. Well, I mean, yeah, that's another that. issue. That's a that's a huge issue, of course. Yeah. Yes, I mean so. For example, Apple, because they they were there early and they did some good things on the iPhone, they locked down as inventions things which, you know, anybody else would have come up with if they'd been given the same problem. And this is the problem right. with our patent system is by de- but the, the, the actual law says that it is not subject to patent if it would be obvious to somebody trained in the art. And I argue that a lot of what is being is having patents issued is just engineering. Yeah. It's just, you know, how do I zoom? Oh, well, you pinch and you 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 expand. Duh. 
You know what I mean? It's like... <laughs> well, I loved it when the judge said, hey, anyone can write a range check. This was one of the... Uh, one of the issues, the patents uh, at, at uh, uh, in the Apple Samsung case, anybody could write a rain check. I just wrote one yesterday. <laughs> I loved that, and it's true. That's an obvious patent. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't have been made a patent. Yep. And and so, for example, one of the things that I love on my BlackBerry is that I hold the key down, and it's initially lowercase, right. and it switches to uppercase. Right. Well, they have a patent on that. Wow. So nobody else can do that. That's too bad. And so. We're losing right. because of of that something which is arguably you know obvious. It's like well, okay, how, how I don't, it's a shift how called shift do... lock. <laughs> yeah, it's, and and so 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 the problem is I you know I completely ecosystem. forgot about that on BlackBerry. I do miss that. That's a yeah. great feature. Now, fortunately, BlackBerry apparently didn't patent the double tap spacebar to put a period space and start a new sentence because that's now on everything. Because <laughs> that's useful too, and when you don't have that, yes. you miss it. Yes. And so, but, but, but what's happening is the ecosystem is being chopped up exactly. in pieces exactly. and good features from something cannot appear on something else because of, of this, mm -hmm. of the, of the, you know, ridiculous level at which we're issuing patents, which is really annoying. Yeah. So I mentioned last week, cryptically, um, something which you have seen, which I just thought I would share with our listeners. Um, uh, and and here it is. <laughs> okay. GRC.com slash animation.htm. And um, this is, I, I've been writing some JavaScript. Actually, let me refresh it because it starts uh, with 0000. So you, if you're, if, uh, when you yes, first I get have, to it, I have it do that because it makes it a little more clear then if it, then if it just I actually originally had it so it was just up and running immediately right. but I like having it start that way and then it gets the uh, data there's a there's a one and now we're starting to see some data come in so what is this for first of all so um, I've decided uh, there was somebody who asked on the podcast early this year I think it was in January he'd he'd like looked around the GRC website and was trying to figure out what Spinrite was. He's a listener to the podcast, and he wanted to buy it, but he thought it would be nice if he knew what it did. You know, and he said, is it a defragger? Is it a, a undeleter? You know, what is it? And I thought, you know, I don't think I ever really explained that. So I decided I ought to create a video because everyone can see videos now uh, where I, in a short period of time, explain about hard drive data recovery. Well, in order to explain about recovery, you need to explain about recording. I mean, you know, how data is stored. So I'm going to produce a video to explain what Spinrite does in a few minutes. And I, But I wanted some diagrams. And to make them fun and interesting, I thought they should be animated also mm. because, you know, animation is often the right way to explain something that's going on. So grc.com slash animation.htm is just more than anything uh, that the, the page is 25K of code. It actually does a lot more than what you'll see because it's, that's the fourth of, of like of five frames that I've designed that will end up being part of the video. But it's a nice little example of what can be done with JavaScript and 
the new HTML5 HTML Canvas API. Oh, that's interesting. This is not like a PowerPoint slide. This is done in HTML. Yes, it's pure web coding. It's it's all it runs beautifully wow. on my iPhone, on my iPad, on my Nexus Seven. Uh, it does not run at all on my BlackBerry. It's like get, you get about one frame every thirty seconds. It's like oh, just give up on the BlackBerry for for <laughs> web stuff. But it, so it's 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 universally cross browser. Um, since I'm in since I'm in XP still. I want. I wanted to see about IE, but Microsoft always the laggard here. Doesn't didn't support the Canvas API until IE nine, and you can't run IE nine in XP. But because IE is so far behind, Google created an add-on for IE, which which if the developer adds a, a, a tag in the header of a web page will invoke the Google Chrome frame and then the page runs in a in a, essentially a transparent uh, Google frame oh. in, uh, under IE. Oh, so the point is that I, I, I'm in XP with IE8 and still able to look at this cool hmm. little animation um, uh, thanks to Google having created a, a frame for it. So. GRC.com slash animation.htm if you want to test it on your particular browser. Are you using any JavaScript libraries or this is just the built-in JavaScript in the browser with HTML5? All me, baby. No libraries. No libraries. Just, in fact, nothing. There's not, no, there are no includes. There's nothing else. It's, the page itself is the JavaScript. So if anyone's curious oh, can how I, can I, I did Can I view source? Things, yeah. Oh, you, you, how nice of you. <laughs> and it's commented and and all that. So that's seriously uh, that's seriously cool. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm gonna, as somebody who you've convinced that I really should learn JavaScript, this will be a very useful um, example. Thank you. Yeah. So um, speaking of Spinrite, I thought I would share a nice story uh, from actually someone named Guy Story, uh, and and he says. KC5GOI. Those sound like call letters, right? Yep. A call sign. That's a hand. KC5. Yep. Okay. KC5GOI. He says, I wanted to pass this on. I am the network admin for a cancer treatment company in Dallas. Today, I received a phone call from the supervisor of our lab. One of our remote offices had reported that their lab PC was giving the BSOD on boot, which we all know those of us who have suffered through Windows, is the blue screen of death. When I arrived on site, I found that XP was at a BSOD and had an unmountable volume. This system is under Dell Gold for troubleshooting, but not for hardware. It is less than two and a half years old. I'm still working to get that changed. So I booted up my personal copy of Spinrite and ran a level two pass. Spinrite worked for a while and reported that two sectors were beyond repair, but that it had been able to recover and repair three other sectors. That appeared to be enough for XP and the needed application since the system now ran perfectly. I ran the Dell Diagnostics after Spinrite. I had to do this before calling Dell. Funny thing, the Dell Diagnostics said the drive was okay. I guess it was now that Spinrite fixed it. I ran Spinrite first, 
since it tries to recover data. The Dell app does not. I suspect the Dell app is not as thorough as Spinrite. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. This PC does not store data, thus we do not have a regular backup of it. I ran Spinrite to get the workstation back online. Once I get the warranty issue fixed, we'll be rebuilding the workstation with a fresh drive. Once that is finished and blessed, I'll be making a ghost copy of it along with the other lab workstations. If it was if if it was not for Spinrite, the employee would have had to rely on getting results faxed to her instead of pulling them up in real time. It would have been mid-morning the next day before she was back online. I'm going to be pushing my employer to buy a corporate license from GRC. Showing how Spinrite saved the day this time will make this an easier task. Thanks, Steve. Aww. And thank you, Guy, for sharing your story with me and our listeners. And thank you, Steve, for sharing your source code. Boy, you're a clean coder. <laughs> wow. You know what you know what I've realized, Leo? Um, it's the more I code, the more I appreciate how it's about communication. Yeah. I mean it coding is communication. With not not just with the computer, but with the human who might read this. Yeah. Including with, yourself. With me, with me when I come back later and <laughs> yeah. go, okay, wait a minute. Boy, this is elegant. Nice. Nice. I can't wait to kind of go through this. <laughs> That is great. And by the way, it's really cool because uh, this is the HTML I'm looking at. By the way, Safari does a very nice job of view source. Um, they've got really got a code browser built in here. Um, but the, the HTML, really, there's very little HTML. It's just it's the script. It's yeah. all script. It's very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah, I think there's like two lines of HTML yeah. where, I where I declare the canvas and right. the size. And one of them is then... what happens if there's no script, no JavaScript yeah. anymore. <laughs> awesome really beautiful that is that is gorgeous wow i can't wait i'm gonna get a good book and i'm gonna sit down and i'm gonna i you know i i love language i collect languages and i and i've learned a lot of them but uh, i think from a pure pra pragmatic point of view learning javascript today is really useful i really think i mean it is obviously one it is the, the world is is moving to the client, yep. you know, we're seeing more and more Google-ish sorts of, you know, the, the app is the client yep. approach. Uh, it just makes sense. Yeah. Very nice. Hey, let's take a break. When we're going to get to Alibaba's cave. Ooh. Okay. We're gonna. This is going to be one where you're going to some steam might come out of your ears. Uh, I think so. <laughs> that just means things are working right. Before we do that, though, let me talk about backup because it's so important. And, um, you know, you'd think I'm talking to experts here. Anybody who listens to this show, they've got backup down, right? Oh, in fact, I think sometimes it's the smartest people who sometimes do the dumbest things. They think, hey, I don't have to worry. I'm a computer expert. What could possibly go wrong? Well, just, you know, put that aside for a moment. And maybe this isn't for you, maybe for friends and family who are not such great computer experts. But I got to tell you, there is a way to back up that is better than any other. It should be automatic, so you do not have to remember it. You know that. If you remember it, it's you're going to be, you know, forget it just as often. It should be continuous. I like this because that means we, you change a file, it's backed up right away. It doesn't wait till next week to back it up. Whenever you're online, Carbonite is always backing up. And it's backing it up to the cloud. Uh, with By the way, it offers, it does not require, but it offers true TNO encryption, pre-internet encryption. 
Only you hold the keys. They, of course, always use SSL. So even if you're an open access spot, you are completely private on the way to the Carbonite servers. And that data is always available to you. So it's cloud storage, too. This would make, perhaps, for some people, a good alternative to Dropbox. You can get to your Carbonite, your backed up data, by logging into your Carbonite account on any computer. They have free apps for almost all the smartphone platforms, tablets, too. And I bet the best part about this is, what is it? What is uh, what? I think it's a uh, hundred bucks for hundred gigabytes. Maybe it's fifty bucks for hundred gigabytes on uh, Dropbox, something like that. Fifty nine dollars a year, unlimited. Less than five bucks a month for everything on that computer. If you have multiple computers, external drives, there are plans for that too. All very affordable. Here's the deal: try it for two weeks at no cost. You don't even need a credit card. Just the offer code Security Now. Carbonite.com, offer code security now. After two weeks, you can make the decision. Is this for me or not? Really good on a laptop. If you get a new laptop, put Carbonite on there and you just can stop worrying about hooking it up or anything. It's just always backing up. If you decide to buy, use security now as the offer code. You get 14 months for the same price as you get 12, two months free. Carbonite online backup. It is the right way to back things up. And, you know, as with almost all of our advertisers, the free trial, to me, that's saying something. It says we're confident. We know we've got a product. We're going to let you try it free. We don't even need a credit card. We know it's a good product. And if you decide you like it, here's the deal. And I think that's the way to do it. Carbonite. They do business the right way. By the way, just moved all of their support people back to the U.S., uh, same reason. They said, you know, we want we weren't getting the greatest support people overseas, so we've moved them back. I think they're in New Hampshire, and uh, because we want to give you great support, I like that. Carbonite.com offer code security now. All right, get ready. We are about to enter the cave of Alibaba, Steve. <laughs> okay, so I was talking at the beginning of the show about how we have in traditional crypto. Uh, Protocol descriptions. We talk about Alice, Bob, and Carol. Um, when we're talking <laughs> from about the movie zero... Ted and Bob and Carol and Alice, <laughs> a '70s movie. That's right. Yep. Uh, and when we're talking about zero knowledge interactive proofs, we used characters Peggy and Victor as the prover oh. and the verifier. Oh, I like that. Now, in in the formalization, the academic formalization of what is a zero knowledge interactive proof there are three there are three requirements for for to like qualify for valid zero knowledge the first is and i'm going to i'm going to go through these first before we talk about alibaba because you'll see how these come into play in the story uh, which will immediately follow so the first is completeness Complete, the, the property of completeness says that the verifier always accepts the proof if the fact is true and both the prover and the verifier follow the protocol. Okay, so that's, so, so that's like the formal way of saying if everything is done right and the, and the, and the actors here act properly, then the verifier always gets what he needs so it's so that's called completeness in this case of of the proof the verifier always accepts the proof if the fact is true and both the prover and the verifier follow the protocol the second property is the property of soundness 
The verifier always rejects the proof if the fact is false, as long as the verifier follows the protocol. So, so completeness says if it's true, the verifier will come to that conclusion. Soundness is sort of the reverse. It says if it's false, the verifier won't, see, won't arrive at a false positive. The verifier will reject the proof. And so that's, that's the requirement of soundness for the zero-knowledge interactive proof. And finally, and this is the one that's a little tricky, but the story does cover it in a clever way, the property of zero-knowledge is the verifier learns nothing about the fact being proved except that it's correct from the prover that he could not already learn without the prover even if the verifier does not follow the protocol, as long as the prover does. Well, um, let me see if I, I understand this. Is, didn't this, we talk about this last week in the question and answer where it said, shouldn't, when you log in, shouldn't it tell you if you got the email right or if you got the password right? Like if you got one thing wrong, just which one you got wrong. Is that the same as zero knowledge? If it's giving, it's leaking knowledge. Um, yes, because for example, this this property goes on to say in a zero knowledge proof the verifier cannot even later prove the fact to anyone else right and that's really that's key. key that's the key so so again the verifier learns nothing about the fact being proved except that it's correct from the prover that he could not already learn without the prover even if he does not follow the protocol. And in a zero-knowledge proof, the verifier cannot later prove the fact to anyone else. Okay, so now we need to talk about Alibaba, which I just love saying, Alibaba. I like saying that like coconut. I love the word <laughs> coconut and Alibaba. Okay, you're just strange. Uh, <laughs> now, you're, now it's just so, getting weird. Very long ago, in the eastern city of Baghdad, there lived an old man named Alibaba. I love how every this is beginning. Day, every day, Alibaba would go to the bazaar to buy or sell things. This is a story which is partly about Alibaba and partly also about a cave. A strange cave whose secret and wonder exist to this day. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is so cool. One day in the Baghdad Bazaar, a thief grabbed a purse from Alibaba, who right away started to run after him. The thief fled into a nearby cave whose entryway forked into two dark winding passages, one off to the left, the other off to the right. Alibaba who was following, did not see which passage the thief ran into, though he did see him enter the main entrance. So Alibaba had to choose which way to go, and he decided to go to the left. The left-hand passage ended, after a while, in a dead end. Alibaba searched all the way from the fork at the beginning to the dead end, but he did not find the thief. Alibaba said to himself that the thief must have been in the other passage. So he searched the right-hand passage 
which also came to a dead end. But again, he did not find the thief, figuring that the thief probably left from the right-hand passage while he was busy searching the left. This cave is pretty strange, said Alibaba to himself. Where has my thief gone? The following day, another thief grabbed Alibaba's basket and fled, as the first thief had fled into the strange cave the day before. Once again, Alibaba pursued him and again did not see which way the thief went. This time, however, Alibaba decided to search to the right. He went all the way to the end of the right-hand passage, but did not find the thief. He said to himself that, like the first thief, the second thief had also been lucky. In taking the passage, Alibaba did not choose to search first. This This had undoubtedly let the thief leave again and to blend quietly into the crowded bazaar. Days went by, and every day brought its thief. Alibaba always ran after the thief, but never caught any of them. On the 40th day, a 40th thief grabbed Alibaba's turban. Boy, he's down to his turban. And fled, as 99 thieves had done before him, into the strange cave. Alibaba yet again did not see which way the thief went. This time, Alibaba decided to search the left-hand passage, but again, he did not find the thief at the end of the passage. Alibaba was very puzzled. He could have said to himself, as he had done before, that the 40th thief had been as lucky as each of the other 39 thieves. But this explanation was so far-fetched that even Alibaba did not believe it. The luck of the 40 thieves was just too good to be a matter of chance. There was only one chance in a million million that all of the 40 would escape. Now, pausing for a second, we know that there's a 50-50 chance given that the two tunnels dead end and Alibaba has to choose one, every time he chooses, he's got a 50-50 chance. 40 days, 40 thieves, that's 2 to the power of 40, which is 1.1 times 10 to the 12, which is, in fact, (laughs) 1.1 million million. So that would be the chance, if the cave is as Alibaba suspects or believes at this point, that In 40 tries, he could never once catch the thief. That's very unlucky. So, Alibaba said to himself that there must be another, more likely explanation. He began to suspect that the strange cave guarded a secret. And Alibaba set out to discover the secret of the strange cave. He decided to hide under some sacks at the end of the right-hand passage. After a very uncomfortable wait, he saw a thief arrive. Sensing he was pursued by his victim, the thief whispered the magic words, Open Sesame. Hmm. Alibaba was amazed to see the wall of the cave slide open. The thief ran through the opening, then the wall slid closed again. 
the pursuer arrived and was all upset to find only Alibaba hiding under the sacks at the end, at the dead end of the passage. The thief had escaped. But Alibaba was happy, for he was finding out the secret of the strange cave. Alibaba experimented himself with the magic words. He discovered to his amazement that when the wall slid open, the right-hand passage was connected with the left-hand passage. Now Alibaba knew how all of the 40 thieves had escaped from him. The very next day, a thief was caught. Alibaba recorded this story and his discovery in a lovely illuminated manuscript. He did not write down the new magic words, but he included some subtle clues about them. Alibaba's lovely illuminated manuscript arrived in Italy in the Middle Ages, and today it's in the United States, somewhere near Boston. (laughs) Wow, that's specific. (laughs) There, it was recently held... um, Uh, It recently acquired the full attention of several curious researchers. Through decryption of the subtle clues, these researchers rediscovered the magic words. After several archaeological excavations in the ruins of the old Baghdad Bazaar, the strange cave was relocated. It was not a myth after all. And despite the centuries, the magic words still worked. All agog, which is not a word you hear very often. One of my favorites. Cur- <laughs> right up there with Cur- coconut. All agog. Ooh, coconut. <laughs> the, curious, the curious researchers went through the end wall between the two passages. The television networks were quickly made aware of the unusual events taking place in Baghdad, and a big American network even got an exclusive on the story. One of the researchers, who we'll call Mick Alley, perhaps a descendant of Alibaba, wanted to demonstrate that he knew the secret, but he did not want to reveal the secret. Here's what he did. First, a television crew filmed a detailed tour of the cave with the two dead-end passages, just like Alibaba had found all those centuries ago. Then everyone left the cave. Mick Alley went back in alone and went down one of the passages. Then the reporter, accompanied by the camera, went inside only as far as the fork, where he flipped a coin to choose between right and left. If the coin came up heads, he would tell Mick to come out on the right. If the coin came up tails, he would tell Mick to come out on the left. It was heads. So the reporter called out loud, Mick, come out on the right. And Mick did just that. In memory of the 40 thieves, this demonstration scene was played 40 times. Each of the times, everybody went back out of the cave and Mick entered alone all of the way down one of the passages, which he, choose, which he chose first. Then the reporter and the camera went as far as the fork, where a coin was tossed, giving Mick the order which cave to come out of. Mick succeeded all 40 times. 
anybody who did not know the secret of the cave would have been exposed on the first failure. Each new test divided by two, the chances of success for someone without the secret. On the other hand, the secret allowed Mick to come out each time through the required tunnel. Employed by another television network, a jealous reporter (laughs) wanted to also film a story about the strange cave. But Mick, honoring his non-disclosure and his exclusivity, refused to participate because he had given exclusive rights to the story to the first network. But Mick mischievously suggested to the jealous reporter that the story could be filmed without possessing the secret. The jealous reporter thought about that for a minute and then smiled to himself. He said, I even know a stage actor who looks like you and you and who could be mistaken for you. And the second story was filmed. In the course of the filming, half of the scenes were spoiled because Mick's double did not know the magic words and so could not get out from the passage, could not get from one passage to the other as required to succeed every time. So the jealous reporter simply edited the tape and only kept the successful scenes until he had 40 of those. The two stories were aired at the same hour on the same same evening by the two competing American networks. And the matter went to court because it was believed that somehow this exclusivity was broken. The other other network. Even here, patent problems. Yes. Both videotapes that were aired at the same time on the same night were placed into evidence, but the judges and the experts could not tell the tapes apart. Which tape was simulated? Which tape was genuine? The tapes alone were not enough to judge by. The simulation surely conveyed... Now, here, 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 here's the cool part. The simulation surely contained no knowledge of the secret because no knowledge of the secret was involved in creating the simulation, so it couldn't have any knowledge of the secret. But the simulation and the genuine tape were indistinguishable from one another. Thus, the genuine tape also did not convey any knowledge of the secret. The reporter who had gotten the exclusive story had been convinced at the time that Mick Alley knew the secret, and he was still convinced. But the reporter, despite all of his efforts in court, was unable to pass his conviction on to the judges um, or onto the television audience either. Because, of course, now he had a tape that was judged to be a fraud or might be because the other network had aired the same thing, apparently showing exactly the same miracle of this Alibaba's cave. So Mick Alley had achieved his real objective, 
He wanted, in fact, to show that it is possible to convince without revealing and so without unveiling his secret. And that's the story of Alibaba's cave. And what have we learned from this, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what does this tell us? Yes, this, th- what does this tell this, us? It's, it's clever, okay. first of all. Uh, yes, it is. Um, so so the, the cave construction is something we see in many discussions because it's so clear how, you know, it's so clear that, that it's, it's a, a, a real world, physical, simple to understand example of how someone could prove something without revealing what it is by, by, um, by, by statistically demonstrating that they have a fact which which they need to use in order to produce an outcome, yet the fact itself is not part of the outcome. And that's the key. So they, they have they they have they're in command of something, some knowledge, and they must use the knowledge in or and 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 um in order to to prove an outcome. But what's interesting is that, that this is a statistical result, a statistical proof. That is, we don't know with absolute utter certainty, even after 40, te- 40 trials, that the person didn't actually just get phenomenally lucky because they could have. And we know that it's, you know, one in 1.1 million million chances given two to the 40 with, with each one having a 50-50 chance. But it's diminishingly unlikely that that somebody without the knowledge could could still provide this outcome. So, so if we look back again at our our three requirements, the formal requirements for a zero knowledge proof, completeness. the The requirement for completeness is that the verifier will always accept the proof. If the fact is true and both the prover and the verifier follow the protocol. So clearly in our little cave model, we have that. The, 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 which is to say that, that the verifier understanding statistics and understanding everything about the structure of what's happening, but only, only lacking the ability to, to uh, only lacking the knowledge of what's required to cross from one tunnel to the other, the verifier accepts the proof that the prover, Peggy, (laughs) um, has the ability to cross tunnels by, by testing enough. So this gives us completeness. Soundness is the property that the verifier will reject the proof if the fact is false, as long as the verifier follows the protocol. So here, this would be if, if Peggy were unable to cross between the, the, the backs of the, of the tunnels in the cave, then, then all it would take would be one time that Victor, the verifier, says, come out on the right, 
Peggy, unfortunately, went down the left tunnel. She can't, no matter how much she wants to, come out on the right because if she doesn't have that fact, she doesn't know, she can't prove her knowledge, then, then that gives us the property of soundness. And finally, the property of zero knowledge is the verifier learns nothing. So the verifier, Victor, out in front, learns nothing about the fact being proved except that it is correct from the prover that he could not already learn without the prover, even if the verifier does not follow the protocol. In a zero-knowledge proof, the verifier cannot even later prove the fact to anyone else. And that's probably one of the coolest things about this is that so, so you know, Victor and Peggy, if we place them in the cave, Peggy can demonstrate her ability her knowledge as many times as as Victor wants her to, yet yet when they're done, they emerge from the cave, Victor says she absolutely definitely can cross between tunnels. And someone says, uh, prove it. (laughs) And Victor can't. You know, he knows because with absolute statistical you know, close to zero probability. I mean, he, 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 he's, he's absolutely sure. Yet he obtained nothing from the experience that he can pass on to anyone else. And this may seem rather abstract and, and, and wacky. There are some applications for exactly this that we will be covering in the future. Did you write this story yourself or is this, <laughs> is this from somewhere? I found it and I modified it a little bit. It's good. But, uh, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Did you add the TV part, or was that uh, was that in there? No, it was re- actually I, I excerpted some stuff that wasn't relevant for our purposes. Right. It was originally in French and it was translated uh, <laughs> wow. into English. But very interesting. Uh, yeah. If you if you put in uh, you Google like uh, zero knowledge. Uh, and kids or something. It's it's sort of meant to be a kid's story, a way of like... Oh, yeah, yeah. How to explain zero-knowledge protocols to your children. Chat room has given this to me. Yep. You guys are good. <laughs> it's by Jean-Jacques Kiscate and um, a few other people. Louis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Louis Guillot. It, it's... Wow, that's hysterical. That's yeah. so good. And, There's illustrations. And, and, Not very good ones, but... Yeah, not very good ones. And and you do run across this tunnel analogy all over the place. I mean, even in formal crypto uh right. in, in crypto papers, I have about five of them that I read in order to see whether there was anything, you know, in order to get myself the 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 depth of understanding that I wanted. Wow. And uh, you know, and they have much better graphics, um, but they're much less fun. And so I thought that That's this was really the, interesting. The, uh, Alibaba's cave is something that our listeners will now never forget. Now, it says how to explain zero-knowledge protocols to your children. I doubt there are no. very many children <laughs> that would really... But it's a good story. It's a great I'm story. I'm not sure they would come away with it saying, Oh, Daddy, now I understand. Zero-knowledge. You're great. I love it. Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where you'll find Spinrite. The world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. Everybody should have a copy of Spinrite. You'll also find lots of other things for free there, including his health and nutrition information that Steve's done some really interesting work with. Somebody was in here a couple of days ago said, when is episode three of The Sugar Hill? 
You, do you plan um, one? I feel like we ought to do a follow-up. Yeah. Uh, but there are a couple other things I really want to talk about. I um, uh, Magnesium is another another component of health that I think is very critical that we're all deficient in. And I have quite a story oh, about my magnesium adventure. All so right, all right. Well, maybe we'll uh, do so another if I one. Can, yeah. if, I can, if I can squeeze some more of your time free, Leo, I, I do think that there's a segment of our of our audience that appreciates it. And boy, I can tell you that uh, the first two episodes have really helped a chunk of our listeners. Help me. They're, they're, they're less chunky. In fact, I'm much chunkier. A lot, lot less chunky there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, uh, Saturday afternoons at 2 uh, will soon oh, yeah, be open. So that's a good time to do it if you want to do it uh, then. Okay. I'll keep it in mind. Keep that in mind when you feel up to it. Sugar Hill 3 starring Wesley Snipes. It's a, <laughs> coming to a theater near you. Also, uh, GRC.com has 16 kilobit versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired. Full text transcripts, always helpful. Uh, and we make audio and video versions available on our site, twit.tv slash SN. We do the show, and you can watch live if you want to challenge your brain in real time. 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesdays at twit.tv. That's 1800 UTC. Steve, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, and uh, we'll be back next week with a Q&A episode. If any listeners have something in particular that is that is uh, tickling their brain, they're wondering about or troubled by, drop a note to grc.com slash feedback. I'll get it, and, uh, and I'll, uh, we'll, we'll go through the mailbag, which uh, I did hear from several people saying, hey, I'm still familiar with the term mailbag. I don't think it's obsolete well, at all. Well, yeah, so, in fact, I don't know why we thought this, but every mail carrier has a mailbag still. Yeah, or a box. My, my mailman <laughs> comes around with a big old bag with leather, yeah, big oh, leather my. strap and his little sheepskin on the shoulder pad. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and shorts. Of hey, thanks. You are, in, you are in Mayberry. We live in Mayberry, so uh, we still have Andy Opie and the barber shops just around the corner. <laughs> Floyd, be glad to cut your hair for 50 cents. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Talk to you next week on Security Now. Security Now.